We'll hear argument in case 129490, Navarrete v. California. Mr. Clavin. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, the Court should hold that officers acting on anonymous tips must corroborate the tips' assertions of illegal conduct as well as the identifying details before making a stop. Whether that tip involves uh, erratic driving, illegal gun possession, or any other uh, allegation of misconduct. Now, the State proposes that the reasonable, sta- reasonable suspicion rule in, uh, established in Terry v. Ohio, which courts and law enforcement officials have been applying now for more than 40 years, should be altered so that now it, it applies as a sliding scale where the level of uh, suspicion varies depending on the nature of the crime that an anonymous tipster claims someone has committed. <coughs> so, I just tip? so if the tip is this car is driving by and, and, you know, throwing bombs out the window, okay, every, you know, whatever, every 500 yards, the police find the car, they have to wait until they see the person actually throw a bomb out the window themselves before pulling him over? Well, Your Honor, in terms of the, uh, the reasonable suspicion, yes, there's, if, if all they have is an anonymous tip and there is no way, they have no way of corroborating any of the, uh, any of the innocent details except that they can identify the car, then, uh, yes, under the well, your answer is yes, the car's going there and he's throwing a bomb out and it goes off, another, but he has to wait till he sees them throw out another bomb? Your Honor, under the Florida jail, uh, the, uh, Court has said that when they are looking at, uh, when all that they are able to corroborate are obvious, uh, reasonably observable details, uh, such as that, then there is no basis for the court to go beyond that. And I, th- I thought that, that JL gave the, an example of an exception, uh, that the report is somebody is carrying a bomb. Well, there is that exception, Your Honor. And uh, in Florida JL, it said that it was not, the court said that it was not uh, required on the facts of that case to speculate about a situation where such a serious danger. Throwing bombs doesn't count, but carrying a bomb does. Well, Your Honor. Were were they throwing bombs that they weren't carrying? Your Honor, that would not make a difference. However, in, uh, in this case, in terms of adjusting the reasonable suspicion standard, the court should not address that. The court Could has I ask you? Said, um, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> Could I ask you what you mean by an anonymous tip? Suppose somebody calls up 911 and gives a name. Does that make it not an anonymous tip? Your Honor, it, it, technically it would not be, but in uh, in the circumstances here, I think it should be treated as an anonymous tip because, again, the uh, the name uh, could be false uh, when the f- tip first comes in. If it's corroborated in some way. Uh, then okay. Well, how would you corroborate it? Let's say the person calls up and gives a name and gives an address. So what would be necessary? What would the police have to do then before they could stop the vehicle, other than observing the vehicle do, do something illegal? Well, again, if, if, if all they have is, is an assertion by the, uh, by the tipster that, uh, that this is the name and the address, in the, uh, if the uh, officers can somehow uh, – Again, by caller identification or some other method, uh, verify that, in fact, that is a person so that somewhere down the line that person will be, will be held accountable for a false tip. Uh, then it can be treated differently. Well, what if you have caller ID? I mean, you have one of these anonymous uh, flip phones, right? You can buy them. It's prepaid. You call up and say, I'm, you know, John Smith. I've seen this. And they look. There's the caller ID. There's a number. Then they can do it. 
No, Your Honor. That would not — if they, if all they have is a number, if, then uh, they are not going to be able to use that as a basis for, for — Well, isn't that all caller ID gives you? Well, but caller ID, if they can — if they are somehow able to to verify, not just that that's, this is coming from this phone, but that, in fact, uh, there is a particular person there, if they can identify the location, that sort of thing. As the as the tip gets more and more like the known informant in the in the Adams case, then the co- the officers can take more solace in the fact that that person is going to be able to be held responsible. In a- Adams, of course, we have a situation where if there is a known informant who can be arrested uh, immediately if, in fact, the tip turns out to be false. The problem with so many of these cases with the 911 tape, 911 caller, is that even if is that there's not going to be any sort of accountability, uh, even if they do manage to identify the person, uh, in terms of showing the tip is false, where the allegation, for example, is weaving, uh, there's no way to prove that. Well, the suppose tip is false. If, if we transport the standard that applies outside of the vehicle context to this context, what would happen in this situation? A person calls up and says, um, "This is my name. This is my address," and it's. Uh, uh, there is, it is not blocked by caller ID, so the 911 operator can see that that's the name, that's the address. The person says, this guy ran me off the road. Uh, the police find the vehicle. They, they, they drive behind the vehicle for a while. They don't, they don't see any, they don't see any, any violation. So then they think, well, this guy must have lied, so then they're going to prosecute the guy for calling, calling that in. No, Your Honor, because they, they still they wouldn't be able to prosecute them because the fact that the vehicle is now not weaving doesn't show that uh, they were the vehicle was or were not weaving. So, I mean, your argument goes well beyond. You're saying this has to do with anonymous tips, but it really goes well beyond anonymous tips. It covers tips where you know exactly who called in, and what, what you're saying is that they they really can never stop a vehicle, no matter what kind of a tip they get, unless they see the vehicle committing an illegal act. No, That's no, the argument. No. I'm sorry. No. I don't think it goes that far, Your Honor. I think as the tip becomes, uh, as, as the, the tip contains more detail and as the uh, tipster becomes more accountable for a false tip, again, getting more over toward the Adams versus Kennedy, then at some point uh, the anonymous tip would well, be, well, or give the, me, the tip Give me an example of a situation in which the police can pull somebody over after receiving a tip without actually seeing the vehicle commit an illegal act? I think, Your Honor, in a, in a situation where the caller uh, calls in, says, I'm, I've been, uh, this car is, is driving erratically, the caller then says, I'm following the car, now we're at such and such a location, uh, the, call, the vehicle has just done something else uh, that's wrong, and they continue to follow up to the point where, uh, okay, I can now see the, uh, the uh, Patrol car coming up where, again, where they're, where the tipster is putting his or her uh, credibility on the line, and the and becomes more and more accountable toward the Adams versus Kennedy um, known informant. Then, uh, if, you, if you add that together under the totality of the circumstances, then you will have a situation probably to do it. I think it's going to be rare, and I think it should be rare because it is so easy. As the court has indicated, the court has shown skepticism for anonymous tips. Uh, because the tipsters uh, are able to harass other people without running any risk of, uh, of being held accountable. And it should be particularly skeptical in the case of, a, uh, of anonymous tips about erratic driving, because 
with the ubiquitous cell phones, it's so easy for somebody who is on the road, who has been annoyed by somebody else, to just pull out the cell phone and call in a false tip. And so in the — Do we have any indication that this is a serious problem, the false tips? Well, uh, there's no empirical uh, evidence in the record. However, it was the same uh, concern that uh, led the Court in JL to uh, refuse to adopt the firearm exception, the concern that making it so easy for people to subject others to the harassment of a, uh, of a stop and, and potential, uh, potential search uh, concerned the Court enough that it denied, it refused to adopt the firearm exception. And in this case, we have a firearm exception, we have a, a, uh, an exception that's being requested that's doctrinally the same as a firearm exception. Uh, there, there is no indication in the record that drunk driving uh, on its own in totality uh, presents a more serious uh, uh, threat to public safety than, uh, than firearms do. In fact, it uh, — Well, well is, that, is that true? I mean, how many people die from drunk driving versus how many people drive, uh, die from uh, firearms? The most, recent, uh, the most recent statistics show a little more. About 11,000 people die from homicides by firearms, and uh, it's usually under 10,000 uh, now uh, that are driving — dying by drunk driving. And in terms of public safety, uh, approximately two-thirds of the people who die as a result of drunk driving are the drunk drivers themselves. So, in fact, the overall threat to public safety is not as great when you're talking about drunk driving as, uh, as um, uh, with firearms. And the Court indicated uh, in JL that it was specifically concerned about the serious threat that armed criminals pose to public safety. And despite that serious threat, they denied uh, the court denied the firearms exception. Now, what the oh, me. I should say, we have, we have held that the, the standards are loosened in the uh, vehicle context because your expectation of privacy is diminished when you're out on the road driving along in, in, in a vehicle. Does that have any pertinence? Well, I don't think so in this case, Your Honor, because even though it's uh, diminished in tr- as, as opposed to, for example, in the home, uh, it's uh, in jail, of course, the person was on a public sidewalk. The person was not in the home. And in, in Proust, the Court talked about the fact that uh, in, in modern-day times, people, a lot of people will feel more of a sense of security. They'll feel more uh, privacy in a vehicle than they would out on the street. But in a context in which we've approved sobriety checkpoints, why should we get bent out of shape over this? Well, Your Honor, in the sobriety checkpoint case, when the Court has looked at uh, the intrusion and found that to be at the very rock bottom in terms of intrusion, the fact that somebody is, uh, uh, along with a number of other people, that uh, they have to submit to a brief stop, uh, it has put that on the lowest uh, on the lowest level. And so it's a diff- the Court has not approved any situation where individual vehicles, as in this case, are, are pulled over uh, without uh, reasonable suspicion that, uh, in fact, somebody in that vehicle is engaged in, in criminal activity. Well, but why is that an important line? Why should we be more concerned when an individual uh, automobile is pulled over? Well, because the, the intrusion is greater, Your Honor. And uh, in the uh, Martinez-Fuentes uh, case and the Brignone-Ponce case, uh, the Court talked about the very minimal intrusion of the checkpoints as opposed to, uh, and Proust talks about this also, that the, there is a serious intrusion when somebody is pulled over. Uh, you, know, you have the activation of, uh, of the uh, emergency lights. You have a siren. 
you're pulled over, possibly in, uh, in a neighborhood where, where you're known and people see it, uh, possibly out in the middle of a road in the middle of the night, as in the, uh, the Wells case. And in either circumstance, it is a, a serious intrusion and one that people are not going to take that lightly. So it's a, it's a different situation, and the Court, again, uh, in, if they're going to be pulling over individual cars, signaling them out for, for stops, which could, uh, under the Court's rules, uh, again, the, uh, the driver, all the passengers can be ordered out of the car. Uh, if, uh, if the Terry standards are met, they can even be. White suggested that we don't have an absolute rule with respect to requiring independent corroboration of the actual illegal conduct. In White, the, the tipster gave future predictive information, but all of it was innocent, somebody driving a car and going to a particular place. Now you're asking us to import that wholesale. Why don't we just stick to our general standard, which is the totality of the circumstances, and look at what failure there is in the logic of the California court below? It, it looked at the quality of the information regarding the vehicle, which is a legitimate tipster will tell you what the vehicle looks like and its license plate or enough information so that it can be identified. It looked at the caller actually witnessing the event and giving you enough detail to know that it's not a legal conclusion but an actual event that suggests recklessness. And a corroboration of the, of the details given by the tipster. Isn't that the application of our traditional test? No, Your Honor, and that's uh, exactly what the Court was looking at in Florida JL versus JL. This well, that's just not true in Florida JL because um, the individual didn't match the description completely, and there were two or three individuals there, not just one. And so — and there was no predictive or no other detail other than someone in this general area. Well — uh, there, there was no predictive detail, but in JL, it w- the tip was a uh, young black male in a plaid shirt at a bus stop. Those details were confirmed. Uh, c- correct me if, if, if I'm wrong. I might be missing something. Uh, the tip in JL was not a, uh, did not assert that a crime was being committed, that there was something suspicious. There was, there was no crime in possession of the gun. Correct me if well, I'm wrong. It, was, uh, it, was, it was possession but, of the gun. But, but, but here, here, the, there was the report was a crime, or, or or is that not a correct distinction? Well, in in JL, they didn't say illegal gun possession, but uh, presumably the uh, tipster thought it was illegal gun possession, and the officer must have thought it was illegal illegal gun possession. Well, why? It, why it, it, and it was illegal. But it was illegal. Well, it was because he it turned out to be under twenty one. But so. but but the, but the tip in and of itself did not indicate that a crime was being committed which is different from this case. I'll agree that the tipster didn't say it, but uh, I think the assumption No, I'm not talking about an interpretation of what the tip said. Well, but unless the, unless the, uh, the implication is that the gun possession is illegal, then there's no reason for the officer to... No, a Terry stop. Hmm? You might have had grounds for a Terry stop. But if the, if the tip calls it, if the tip says, uh, I'm looking at a case of uh, gun possession that, as far as I know, is perfectly legal. It's like uh, in this case, if the car, if the tip came in and said, uh, I've just been passed by a car who's, uh, which was driven uh, very skillfully. 
Uh, there's no point in, in, in pursuing the, the tip in JL unless there's some, uh, some element of illegality. Well, I, I think there's a difference, but I think for our purposes we can assume that uh, the cases are comparable in that respect. Okay. Uh, but uh, not comparable, perhaps, in others. Okay. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, going back to, to your concern, in, so in Florida versus JL, those elements were, were confirmed. Uh, and the, but the court found that the fact that uh, those elements, which could be observable by anybody who was uh, looking at the situation, probably even uh, more clearly uh, a personal <coughs> observation where the uh, the plaid shirt was identified, that that didn't give any reason to believe that the person was also being truthful in talking about concealed. No reason activity. to believe the caller had personal knowledge. Pardon me. No reason to believe the person had personal knowledge. Well, but he didn't say that of, the gun was okay. pulled on him or that no, they, or they, how he saw it or how he knew right. it. There was no indication as to how the person knew about the gun. Some, you don't think there's something significant about calling up and saying someone forced me off the road? Well, there is something significant, Your Honor, but by itself, uh, that just gives the uh, officers some reason to go uh, check and see whether, in fact, they are, there is a chance to corroborate. And in, in the case of an inebriated driver, the fact that the driver is inebriated is concealed in the same way that J.L.'s gun was, unless there's some sort of erratic driving going on. What if there's no way for the officer to corroborate the allegation? Um, you know, you see, see somebody on the street grab a, <clears throat> a young child, throw her in the trunk of the car, um, and then take off. And somebody calls with an anonymous tip, saying this fellow, you know, in the, this car uh, has got a child in the trunk. The police can follow the person, you know, for, for hours, and they're not going to see any corroborating evidence. Can well, they pull that car over? Well, Your Honor, if, if that's all they have to go on, uh, then uh, under Florida J- versus J.L., uh, they would not. If they so just because your answer in that case is that the police cannot pull that car over. If, in terms of, obviously, it's a more serious situation, but uh, the court has not held that uh, this. Well, let, let's expand it a little. It's, it's a, it's a one-lane, two-lane road going down, but it merges into, you know, eight-lane expressway. You have one police car. It's going to be hard for that police car to maintain uh, uh, surveillance, and you say they just got to let them go. Well, Your Honor, I think if you're talking in terms of just the seriousness and you're looking in terms of the Florida versus JL exception, the Court seemed to be indicating in that case that there would be a danger that was so extreme where the Court would find a search or a stop justified without any showing of reliability. Well, just in terms of your position, do you think they could pull the car over? No, Your Honor. I don't think it would change because, again, it's just the the seriousness of the claim should not affect whether there is, in fact, reasonable suspicion. No, you you get an A for consistency. I'm, I'm not sure about common sense. Uh, no, I'm, I, I'm not sure he gets an A for consistency. I, I, thought, uh, I thought you said uh, you, you acknowledged or, or didn't repudiate the statement, in, in our opinion, in, in J.L., that uh, if there was a bomb in the car, that would be something else. What, what if there's in the car you know, the, the tip is this person has an atomic bomb given him by al-Qaeda. He is driving it into the center of Los Angeles to, to eradicate the entire city. Okay? Let it go. Your Honor, I believe — He it, tell, tells you the, the license number, where the car is. You can't stop the car? 
I believe, uh, consistent with uh, what the Court said in Porter versus J.L., that may be a situation, again, where the Court decides that this, the risk is so great. So, you see, he's not consistent. I mean, no, it's, but it would not be, it should not change, it should not be in terms of uh, level of, uh, of suspicion required under, under Terry. The reasonable suspicion standard should not change on that. The Court seemed to be indicating in Florida versus J.L. that at some point the level of danger would become so great that, in fact, there was so the atomic, the atomic bomb, the level of danger is great enough, but the young girl in the trunk, the da- level of danger is not great enough? Your Honor, uh, what I say is in either of those situations, the Court may uh, want to consider some sort of exception to the reasonable suspicion standard, and that seems to be <coughs> what is your given away the principle. What you would do if you were on this Court? With those hypotheticals, what is your position that should happen in those two hypotheticals? Well, Your Honor, I think that uh, the court may well want to uh, to uh, uh, craft some. What is your position as to what the court should do well, in those cases? Uh, let me start off by saying, if I could, that I don't think the court needs to reach that question in this case, just as it did not need to reach that question. I, I understand else. it, but we're interested in the hypothetical, right? Uh, Your Honor, I, I believe that, that, then again, I don't know what particular doctrine the court would uh, would choose, but I think that probably the court could find some uh, some doctrine that would allow it in that circumstance to find it. But it shouldn't be it shouldn't be moving toward the sliding scale element in uh, that that uh, we're talking about. What about here. this? In JL, the court made quite a point of saying an accurate description of a subject's readily observable location is reliable in a limited in a limited sense, namely identifying the person. Such a tip, however, does not show that the tipster has knowledge of concealed criminal activity. That's right. Right? Not concealed here. Well, that's uh, well, that's an obvious difference. I mean, in one case it was concealed. In this case it isn't concealed. Well, but you except, say. Your Honor, that, in fact, when we're talking about drunk driving, uh, it, whether the person is inebriated or not, uh, didn't, but didn't the tip here have something to do with his driving around in a wild way, or a, at least an unusual way? I'm not sure I would have followed him. Hmm? If well, it had been me, I, well, anyway, you see the point. Right, but the question is, Your Honor, is the person inebriated or not, uh, to take the, the state's best example? And that, that issue, that is a concealed uh, element of criminal behavior unless the person is actually driving erratically. If the person is driving erratically when the officers appear, then there's no Fourth Amendment issue. And it's clear that they have either reasonable suspicion or probable cause to pull over the vehicle. It seems to me you're willing to accept uh, our allowing allowing the police to stop the car with the atom bomb and even allowing the police to stop the car with the kidnapped uh, girl in the trunk. Uh, once you know, once you give away those, we're just arguing about details. But, where where you draw the line? And does does drunken driving fall on one side or the other of, of the line? And some of us may think drunken driving is is pretty serious and probably um, you know as serious as having a kidnapped girl in the trunk. And, and your honor, I. I I didn't mean to concede that the court should uh, should reduce the level of suspicion for reasonable okay. suspicion in order well, to do that. More than that, but I want you to say the court shouldn't. Let the car go. Bye-bye, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm saying is that — In this case, your grade for uh, consistency depends on this answer. <laughs> Excuse me? Your grade for insist- consistency depends on this answer. What I'm saying, Your Honors, is 
The State is arguing for a sliding scale that changes things. The Court postulated in Florida versus JL a situation that was so extreme, that was so unique, that the Court might decide to address it without even getting into reasonable suspicion. But do can we no, that's what I asked you, and I, I press the point a little bit, because in the beginning of your brief, it says that the anonymous tip, what you say, indicated that a Ford F-150 pickup truck had run someone off the road. That's right. Now, maybe you do have to be, you know especially whether the person's drunk or not, but you don't have to have some special conce- knowledge of anything concealed to know if somebody has run somebody off the road. But, Your Honor, the, the idea of running off the road is concealed. Even if the person weren't drunk, I think it's illegal to run someone else off the road. I'm not disagreeing with you, Your Honor. No. What I'm saying is that unless the person is still driving erratically by the time that the officers arrive, then that activity is concealed in the same way that the question of whether J.L. had a gun or not was concealed. You can't, the officers can't see it. And therefore, uh, there's no reason to treat this case any differently than the case in JL. They have to be able to see something like erratic driving or something else in order to be able to corroborate that. And I assume you would, you would also say, to tie it into uh, um, Justice Breyer's question, you would also say that that tip, somebody ran me off the road, would not justify the, cor- uh, the, the police in stopping the car just to make sure that uh, this car was not the one that drove the guy off the road, right? That's right, Your Honor. Never mind drunkenness. The tip doesn't say anything about drunkenness. You said, no. this car drove me off the road. And you'd say the police could not uh, follow that car, pull him over, and, and ask, did you, did you drive somebody off the road? Your Honor, absolutely the police can follow that car, and that's what they should do. And, in fact, that's what they did here. In this case, there was, as, as your Oh, well, following the cars is going to do them no good as, as, as to whether he drove, drove somebody off the road. They're, well, they're not looking for a drunk. They're looking for somebody who drove somebody off the road. Right. But right? if they can't see any erratic driving still going yeah. on, then where is it going to go? They, they're not going to prosecute for the reckless driving that allegedly took place 19 miles away. And they have followed that car for an additional What if the guy admitted it, you know? Other than that, Your Honor, Play Mutt and Jeff with him, and he, oh, yeah, I did, yeah. But, but Your Honor, the, the, the person who's making the claim is, is nowhere to be found. Uh, she's gone. There's, uh, there's nowhere there. So there's no additional uh, investigation. Really well, but you, what, what if the, what if the uh, person said, okay, my name is this, you know, my phone number is this, this guy drove me off the road. They can't corroborate that until they stop the guy. Were you saying they have to? They have to wait. They have to make the call. See if the guy's there. Did you the guy that just calls? That guy's got to talk on his cell phone while he's driving? Well, what I'm saying is, yes, they have to verify in some way so that they have some reason to, to believe that, in fact, the person that's telling them this is actually the person that uh, is being said. So I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Lawrence. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> A police officer may act on an anonymous tip that reports reckless or drunk driving by immediately stopping the vehicle without waiting to personally observe dangerous driving that could threaten others. An officer can reasonably rely on such a tip because the importance of the governmental interest in protecting the public from the ongoing and immediate threat of drunk driving outweighs the minimal intrusion of a traffic stop. Now, petitioners argue that — Is every reckless driving drunk driving? I'm sorry. Is Is every reckless driving drunk driving? Not every reckless driving is drunk driving, but a report of reckless driving gives reasonable suspicion that the person may be drunk, and that's sufficient for the stop in this case. 
You, you now, how about if somebody just calls and says, um, X vehicle is driving recklessly, says no more, doesn't describe how, doesn't give you any details as to how they know it, is that enough? Reasonable I, suspicion? I would say that the term reckless is, and the reason I say that is because driving is something that's intimately familiar to the average citizen. And when a citizen is going to call in and make a report, when they use the language reckless, that has meaning. That uh, describes a behavior that poses an ongoing threat to the public. Yeah, but not necessarily drunkenness. I think there, there are a lot of people that get tickets for reckless driving who have not served jail terms for driving drunk. That, that is, the, the two are far from synonymous. Well, I wouldn't say they're synonymous, but I would say that one is the indicator of the other, because while you can Why? How re- about speeding? There's plenty of people who speed yeah, regularly. I would say a report of speeding is not sufficient to have reasonable suspicion. Oh, isn't that reckless behavior? So how do you know someone who calls my mother who can't drive above 50? Well, you're Thinks that when I go 51 that I'm speeding. And reckless. I, I would say that, uh, once again, the public has uh, lots of familiarity with driving, and they can recognize the difference between poor driving and reckless driving or something or drunk driving. And when people are going to pick up the phone and make that call to 911, they're doing so because they perceive a danger on the roadway. And I think while the statistics are sparse on this, the uh, footnote two in the government's brief is particularly helpful in this regard in that they note that for calls that are made Two 911 centers for, for that are tracked by the states. Between 25 and 50 percent of those calls result in arrests, and what that shows is that the public knows what they see when they make these calls. This is a far yeah, and, and, and between uh, what 50 and 75 percent, uh, they've stopped people without just cause. Yes, but we are talking about reasonable suspicion, so it doesn't require certain. Or they, they, they've troubled people who shouldn't have been troubled. That is correct, and that is uh, no, always a possibility in the reasonable suspicion context. What, what if you know, the call is, you know, I'm driving, this guy just drove by me, I looked over, he didn't have his seatbelt on. I mean, can the police pull that guy over? No, I don't believe that would be sufficient to pull it over, because you don't have any governmental, you don't have a, a threat to public safety in that context. Well, yeah, there's, there are laws against driving without a seatbelt because that protects people's lives. Certainly there are laws, and, and the officer, I guess, would have reasonable suspicion that there is a traffic violation, but I know that it would rise to the level of uh, uh, implicating public safety in this context. Well, well reckless driving always does, whether, it, whether it's the consequence of inebriation or not. Yes. So uh, a simple call saying, boy, this guy, you know, he cut in in front of me. He's changing lanes too frequently. Yes. That, that enables the, the policeman, without observing any of that reckless driving, to stop the car further down the road. Yes, I mean, provided, of course, that you have the additional details of the description of the car, the location that you can. I've never understood. What good does those, you know, let's say that, you know, I'm at a party. I don't like somebody there. I see they have a couple of drinks. I know what kind of car he drives. Uh, I know the, I can look at the license plate. I call, you know, 10 minutes later. I know where he goes driving home. There's this car. It's white, whatever. It's got this license plate. It's swerving all over the road. 
Well, whether he is or not, the police go up, they pull him over and find out, yeah, he had, you know, fails the breathalyzer and I get my revenge. The importance of those details is that they allow the officers to confirm that this is a personal observation, which is an important fact noted in Gates, that when you have a report of personal observation of, of illegal conduct, we can take that report more seriously. It's entitled to more credibility than just a bare report. How but my the question — I was just going to say, my point is it need not necessarily be a personal observation of the person operating the car. It may be prior knowledge. Um, uh, and I gather one of the issues we're concerned about is people using this to, you know, exact revenge or, or do something else and having nothing to do with whether or not the person's violating uh, the law on the highway. Yes, that is true. But if the personal knowledge, if the officer can uh, use that personal knowledge to confirm, okay, he was correct about the report of the car, report of the location, report of the direction where it's supposed to be going, then you have some indication that the personal knowledge is accurate. As opposed to a bare tip when you're talking about uh, hidden conduct, then you have to look to predictive details, and that takes us into the JL context. Or the but if I understand you correctly, as long as you can identify the car, you need no specificity as to what the car has actually done. In other words, you know, just saying the driver was reckless is enough. Is that, is that correct? Well, I would say that recklessness carries uh, information that is — has some specificity. What would fail your test? Well, if a caller calls in and says, I saw him in a bar, he had one drink, he came out, got on the road and went away, um, one drink is not going to rise to the level well, — But you're just saying, report, I mean, what his basic point is on the other side is these are all variations of the famous white horse defense. You don't know the white, white horse defense. Your Honor, my client was innocent because at the time of the crime, he was in Yugoslavia wearing a white horse, riding a white horse. And to prove it, I have the horse here in court. You see? I mean, it, 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 you can't — it's bootstrapping, put it more succinctly. All you know is that somebody came in and quoted a, and, and said there was a crime. And uh, uh, that's all you know. Well, now, now when, when are instances where uh, no more than the report that it's a crime — that's reasonable suspicion. That's, give me some other instances where the courts have upheld. Well, that's enough. Well, if a caller says, I mean, we're I'm not saying common sense. I'm saying what the courts have held. Yeah. Well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where the courts have upheld based on just a bare tip? Or not a bare tip. Sorry. A description that a crime is occurring. Where, where has that, that's all. I mean, and, and, and he, then we have a question of, well, is it in the one category or the other? Because what we have here, someone phones in and says, a crime is occurring. And, and we know we've corroborated the following. If a crime was occurring, he was in a position to know. Because he can define the, he, he can talk about the white horse or he can talk about the car. Uh, the closest case I can think of is Hensley, where an officer was relying on uh, an arrest bulletin from another jurisdiction. And in that case, United States v. Hensley, that case, the Court did consider for purposes of whether a prior crime that had been committed, uh, whether the officer had reasonable suspicion to stop that individual, it took into account the nature of the offense well, and whether there's a threat correct, to public safety. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection of Hensley is you're right. Police Department 1 uh, notifies Police Department 2. But a premise of the case I had thought uh, was that Police Department 1 had reasonable suspicion? Well, the, there were two parts to the, uh, to the case. The, second, the first part was whether you could uh, uh, make a detention based on a prior crime. 
as opposed to current uh, immediate uh, occurring events. I understand that. And so it looked to the nature of the crime and whether there was threat to public safety as valid considerations in authorizing a stop for a prior offense. Um, the second part of that was uh, the allowing the officer to rely on another jurisdiction's reasonable Hens- Hensley's victim wasn't a victim, meaning there was an, it was an anonymous tip? No, it was from another police jurisdiction. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it wasn't an anonymous no, tip. No, it was not an anonymous tip. It wasn't public safety. It was the report of a crime by a known person. Yes, it was. And in that case, the Court said that you could arrest for prior uh, for a prior offense uh, if it was a felony. They reserved the question of whether you could do so for a misdemeanor. So it's already looking at the nature of the offense and the threat to public safety. Now, Mr. Lawrence, can I understand what you're saying? You're saying that in every case when we have to decide whether the threshold level of reasonable suspicion has been met or whether the level of probable cause has been met, that courts can take into account the seriousness of the offense and what would not count as probable cause for one crime will count as probable cause for another? Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that in terms of when we can deem a tip reliable, White uh, identified two components to the inquiry. One is the indicia of reliability and the other was the content of the tip. And so we have to take the seriousness of the offense, the threat to public safety, into account in determining when the officer can rely on that information. Well, I don't understand how what you're saying is different from what I just said. I mean, that would seem to me to work quite a substantial change in in Fourth Amendment law, that when we decide whether reasonable suspicion exists, whether probable cause exists, that we get to take into account how serious the offense is. Well, I think since the inception of the doctrine, this Court identified in Terry that reasonable suspicion results from a balancing of the governmental interest. The balancing occurs categorically. Mm-hmm. We decide that there's a reasonable suspicion standard by balancing interests. Mm-hmm. What we don't do is say, you know, depending on how serious we think this crime is, more or less will meet that reasonable suspicion standard. That would be a very substantial reworking of Fourth Amendment law. Or so it seems to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I believe that was something that was indicated in Hensley, that this Court looked to the nature of the offense in deciding whether or not the officer had reasonable suspicion at the inception in making that stop for a crime that had occurred two weeks earlier. And it, didn't, it declined to consider whether or not that would be sufficient for a misdemeanor. But in taking the seriousness of the crime into account and determining whether or not they could make that stop, that's a recognition that the balancing does play some role. And in White, this Court recognized that um, the reliability component is variable. There's a difference between probable cause and reasonable suspicion. And in JL, this Court left open the question of at what point we need no reliability because of the seriousness of the governmental. Could you explain to me one more time why it's relevant that there were these details, that it was a particular kind of crime, that it was silver, license plate? Uh, that, that, that's this case. Suppose another case, the car just ran me off the road uh, and it's uh, — uh, the, the only the only car that's on Highway 1 uh, between Fort Bragg and the State Park? Well, I think it helps twofold. There's particularity, so you know who you're stopping. And it goes to the totality of the circumstances in helping confirm that the person actually observed what they're saying, so that you have uh, — it goes to the reliability of the personal observation. So it builds — it adds an additional layer of, of uh, the indicia of reliability so the officer can rely on it sooner. In- incidentally, I — doesn't have much to do with the case. Is this a, two, a two-lane road? Yes, it is. That's what I thought. Yeah, a two-lane coastal highway, um, which obviously when someone runs somebody off the road poses a grave threat to public safety in that context. There's a tip that someone is carrying a concealed weapon. 
and we have held that that has to be corroborated. You can take out a concealed weapon in an instant and fire it and kill lots of people. In fact, it was pointed out that there are more deaths caused by guns than there are from drunk driving. So what's the difference? The the argument on the drunk driving is very, very dangerous, but so is having a gun in one's pocket. Well, I think there's a significant difference between having a gun in your pocket and actually brandishing it or firing it. I think if the jail case involves somebody threatening other people with the gun or firing the gun, it would involve a different calculus. And but so if you, once, once you brandish it, it's too late. The damage will be caused. That is that is correct, but once you're driving drunk down the road, it's you you have the threat is now posed to everybody on the highway because of the potential for that person to lose control because they're not. Of course, th- this call di- didn't say I think the guy was drunk. It just said somebody drove you know drove me off the road. Yes. Right. So this isn't it, it isn't a call that says there's a drunken driver. It's just a call that says somebody drove irresponsibly. Right. And that's enough. Well, I would, say that, I would say that, that in this case it is enough, but I would say it's more than just driving irresponsibly. Running somebody off the road reflects that they're incapable of driving their car in a way that's <laughs> without posing a safety threat to other people. And when you're dealing with reasonable okay. suspicion. Really irresponsibly, okay? Okay. Really irresponsibly. <laughs> Very irresponsible. So do you think, Mr. Lawrence, if the police had followed this man for half an hour and seen no other uh, uh, signs of erratic driving, and nobody can drunk drive can drive drunk for half an hour without swerving, without doing something else. So they could still have stopped the car. I think there may be a point where the threat to public safety would suggest that the reasonable suspicion is dissipated in that context. And so after after 50 miles, well, I thought you were saying as long as somebody had had, had given an account that mm-hmm. some time ago uh he had driven another driver off he had run another driver off the road it doesn't matter whether you're drunk doesn't matter anything there was an account of an illegal act taking place and that was enough to stop him doesn't matter what he's doing now well i believe that the threat to public safety plays a role in the balance and so if that's dissipated then at that point it you have uh, the the reliability of the tip that you're relying on is not as significant or let me put it this way when you have the threat to public safety balanced in the totality for purposes of reliability, if that dissipates, then you have to go back to the tip itself for whether it is internally reliable or whether it has enough to satisfy JL. I think that when you have an immediate threat, when you have a report of drunk driving, the officer shouldn't have to wait to see that 50 miles to see if they can pass or fail. It wasn't a report of drunk driving. I'm sorry. Yes, a report that someone it. ran him off the road. But Somebody ran me off the road. Somebody was driving yes. really irresponsibly. Yes. And but that's I, enough to stop him down the road. It is. It is. Because this is how drunk drivers display their actions. And when you're dealing with reasonable suspicion. What about cutting me off too quickly, you know? I think that would Cuts be, right in front of me. Really ticks me off. <laughs> that would present a different set of circumstances. If you have uh, an instant, uh, a recognizable instant of bad driving as opposed to something that reflects recklessness or drunkenness, then you would analyze the tip differently. Um, and I think that well, — how, how will somebody ever be able to observe another car 
driving ever be able to say that person was drunk. All they could all they could observe is what they see. They don't know whether the person what is causing that kind of behavior. I agree. And that's because what we do, we look to the nature of their driving and draw reasonable inferences from that. And that's all officers can ever do. When they observe something, they draw reasonable inferences and determine whether it gives them suspicion. Um, and one thing I would point out that uh, the CHP dispatchers, the testimony in this case, reflects that they ask. They ask the driver, well, what did you see? So that they can get that information and pass it along to give the officers much well, I think it's an entirely different case if the tip, if the tip here wa- was — you know, I was at a party. This guy got in his car. He should not have turned the key on in that car. This guy is really drunk. You should stop that car on the road. I think that's totally different from somebody just saying, this guy swerved or this guy drove me off the road. You're, you're, you're just making the assumption that, uh, that every, every one of those incidents demonstrates uh, a drunk behind the wheel. And I just don't think that's true. Well, again, I would say it's not about demonstrating. It's not about certainty or even probabilities. It's suspicion. And that behavior allows the officer to suspect drunk driving. Well, why is it limited to drunk driving? I don't understand that. I've been, I've been on uh, an expressway, and I've had people go by me at — they went by in a blur. They must have been going well over 100 miles an hour. Now, if the police catch up with that person, of course the person's going to slow down while the police follow the person. And then when the police uh, decide to stop — they're going to go back to engaging in this intentional, extremely dangerous conduct. So I don't understand why there's a distinction between reporting that somebody necessarily is driving erratically so the person may be impaired and somebody who is, is where you have extremely reckless driving that's uh, intentional. Well, I wouldn't draw that distinction. I think uh, reckless driving in and of itself can pose a threat to public safety that also mandates an immediate stop. If someone's playing chicken with another car on the road, if someone is, uh, you know, try, testing out their new Ferrari and is going 100 miles an hour weaving in and out of lanes, those all represent threats to public safety in all those circumstances. But all crime represents a threat to public safety, and yet we have these standards. Yes, they, we do have standards, but the, the threat to public safety is part of the totality of circumstances. It's not it's something you invoke that wipes away all other inquiries. What we have here is we have uh, a tip that, if was given by a known person, I, I think would undoubtedly allow the officer to pull that car over immediately. The question is, because it was anonymous. Why? Why? The, we have the case of the trusted informer. The mm-hmm. informer several times has given the police tips, and it turned out to be right. And then we have on the other side the anonymous person. Mm-hmm. Then there's somebody who, who calls, gives correct name and address, but no record at all of reliability. Why should the, the fact that the name is known, the name of the informer is known, if the police have no reason to believe one way or another that this informer is reliable? Well, I, believe that when you're looking at at what point it's reasonable for the officer to rely on the content of that tip or to rely on on that tip coming in and act on it, that when somebody gives their name, uh, that adds a layer of reliability to it, even without verification. And I think one thing that uh, Gates says in the context of somebody who reports a a, um, personal observation of a crime is that even if we doubt their veracity, even if we have some question as to their motives, the fact that they are giving a personal observation, and they note that it's a personal observation, and giving a detailed account of what occurs, that report is entitled to a greater degree of reliability. Than you, you don't think that a teenager standing on a street corner with a couple of other teenagers 
with a gun in his belt represents a threat to public safety? Not the same threat as in this case, Your Honor. No. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Counsel. No, no, we're going to hear from Ms. Kovner first. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, brief car stops based on anonymous tips of reckless or drunken driving are reasonable under the Fourth Amendment because they serve a critical government interest in removing drunk drivers from the roadway. Please define for me what behavior would give police officers or what descriptors would be adequate for the police to think someone's drunk. Swerving, I know, has been mentioned. But reckless driving, there's been a lot of discussion that there could be a wide variety of reckless driving. So what, what other things would a, would a caller have to say? So, Your Honor, I think I agree with the uh, observation that there are some behaviors that uh, pose an ongoing threat to others on the roadway and some driving violations that don't. NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safe, Safety Administration, and other organizations do keep track of what kinds of behavior are associated with drunkenness. And the Court in this case, of course, looked at the particular behavior and said, is this really a reckless driving behavior, the kind of behavior that poses this imminent danger? So there is a line that courts would need to draw, but the courts that are engaging in this kind of analysis do draw that. And, of course, well, what, what goes on the other side of the line? I mean, why, why is this on one side, and then tell me what's on the other? Sure. So examples of behavior on the other might be the seatbelt violation, and they also might be behaviors that uh, it's a real judgment call whether a violation occurred or not. So, for instance, um, that person didn't fully stop at a stop sign. We might have doubts about whether an informant uh, who we don't know anything about can accurately perceive that. But when we're talking about behavior like what we've got here. I think here, what you're saying to me. Am I correct that almost any moving violation counts? Changing the lane without a signal, which seems to be endemic in Washington, but. Um, I think that would be a harder case. I'm not sure that it's correlated with, with uh, intoxication or impairment. Um, as you say, it's, it's very common, but I think the behavior that we're talking about here, driving somebody else off the road, is the kind of behavior that shows this person is a. Cutting somebody else off on their lane. Um, I, I think that's close to the line, Your Honor. I'm, I'm not sure that it's always illegal, uh, and it's something where we may have doubts about whether the informant can accurately separate um, this person was breaking the law from this person wasn't. I think the courts are going to have to answer the question of whether this is, a, you know, the kind of behavior that poses a. Well, where does that? I'm, I think this is the question Justice Kagan asked earlier. How does the nature of the offense affect the reasonableness of the suspicion? So, I mean, in either case, you have, let's say, the seatbelt and the, the, the swerving driver. It's the same witness. He said it's still it's a white uh, uh, Ford. The reasonableness of the suspicion would seem to me to be totally divorced from what it's about. I think that's true, Your Honor. And we actually think, uh, and, you know, we argued in our brief that there is reasonable suspicion here. Um, when an informant gives a basis for knowledge, you have reason to think they're an eyewitness. But the Court has also recognized that there are certain dangers on the roadway that allow intrusions even when we might not otherwise allow them. So, for instance, in the Sitz case, the Court said that drunk driving is such a great danger that we're going to allow even random stops of vehicles to detect drunk drivers. So I think the Court has indicated 
there are certain driving behaviors that are so dangerous will allow even suspicionless stops. And here, of course, we're not dealing with suspicionless stops. The, the questions from the Court have indicated some of the reasons why that's the case. Here we have a caller who's demonstrated their basis for knowledge, and officers have been able to confirm that. So we're talking about tips where the person relays the kind of details you could really only have if you were an eyewitness to this person's driving on the road. Well, that's just not true. It's, a, it's a, an acquaintance. I know what kind of car he drives. I know where he's going. I didn't see anything on the road, but I call the police and say, oh, there's this, you know, white Ford swerving all over the road. So, Your Honor, I think this class of people who are going to have the relevant knowledge is almost exclusively eyewitnesses. You may also have a few people who have seen the person's car and happen to know what direction they're headed in. But for the most part, we're talking about a, a very narrow class of individuals that are largely going to be eyewitnesses to this person's driving on the road. No, I'm talking about the concern that you want to have the police pull over people that you don't like where you know somebody's got something bad in the car and you don't like it. And so you're going to take advantage of the fact that the police don't have to observe anything, uh, and yet you can still get them to pull over this person. So somebody who's malicious, who's a prankster, is still going to have this kind of specialized knowledge. Um, and that's not something a malicious prankster is necessarily going to have. Why is that different from the knowledge in J.L., that there were three young men, and they were described, and... The caller said, the one with the gun is the one with the plaid shirt. All all of that was corroborated by the police, and yet we held that that was no indication that a crime had been committed. Your Honor, I think the critical thing that's present here that wasn't present in jail is the basis for knowledge. So as the passage that, that Justice Breyer read signals. We're talking there about concealed criminal activity, and the Court pointed out in that case there's nothing in the tip that signals how the informant knows this person had a gun. Here, in contrast, the person is telling you, I'm an eyewitness. This person just ran me off the road. But then you think J.L. would have come out differently if the tipster had said, I just saw these guys and I saw, you know, one of them had a gun? I think this case comes out differently for two reasons. One is, yes, the tip would be stronger than the tip in J.L., if the person relayed an eyewitness basis. But the second has to do with the imminent danger here that's posed by a, a car that's moving down the roadway uh, and it's being operated by a potentially drunk driver, and the reduced expectations of privacy you have when you're talking about a vehicle stop. And those were front and center and sits where the Court said that even suspicionless stops can be justified by that particular danger. Yeah, but that, but that second danger, uh, that you may have a drunken driver on the road, that danger can be eliminated by following the car. You don't have to stop the car right mm-hmm. away. You can follow it. And if, indeed, the, uh, the, the driver seems to be uh, driving uh, erratically, then you can stop. You'd have probable cause. I, I don't think you, you have to automatically allow a stop in order to prevent all of the horribles that are going to arise from drunk driving. Follow the car. If he's behaving like a drunk driver, then stop him. Sir, Your Honor, officers could follow the car. And if they do, they may witness a subsequent dangerous behavior that could justify pulling over the car. The problem is that the subsequent dangerous behavior they may observe may be the car swerving into another lane and hitting another vehicle. Well, that that is so remote. I mean, it it seems to me you're asking us to adopt a broad rule that is contrary to to what we we normally do for for searches and seizures, uh, because now and then, it would seem to me very rarely, uh, before the police can stop the drunk driver, 
he kills somebody. I, I mean, I suppose that could happen now and then, but it's, it's pretty fanciful. Your Honor, I don't think it's a remote harm at all. You know, this is a harm that causes one-third of all of traffic accidents that takes tens of thousands of lives a year. And it's a harm that this Court has always said is a harm of the first order that justifies the kind of intrusions that we might not otherwise allow in other Fourth Amendment cases. But here we have the police did follow the vehicle for about five miles and saw nothing erratic about the driving. So perhaps if the police had immediately stopped the person or <clears throat> but don't we, don't we have to take account that there was no corroboration when the police get there even if they could stop him instantly when they have no corroboration then that doesn't amount to reasonable suspicion your honor i agree that police might uh, follow a car for such a long period of time that the reasonable suspicion would dissipate. On the facts of this case, Your Honor, the record indicates there were five minutes between when the officers first saw the car and when they pulled it over. They weren't five minutes of uninterrupted observation. They were five minutes in which the officers were turning their cars around because they were headed in the opposite direction, were catching up to a car along the freeway. So the California Supreme Court analyzed the, that delay and found that the fact that they didn't observe additional. I don't know if we have to get into the drunk driving. It's three miles south of the Humboldt County border on Mount. Do you know the answer to this? Is it in the record? I mean, on many sections of that road in Mendocino County, you drive someone off the road, they're dead. I mean, they're sheer drops. Right. And, and uh, so I, I just wonder if I look that up here, what's the situation where this uh, supposedly took place? I, the only thing I can point to about that, Your Honor, is the way that the California Supreme Court treated this, which is, which is that, because they pointed to the fact that this is a two-lane highway um, and that it's particularly dangerous on this particular road um, to engage in this behavior. But I don't know about, uh, you know, whether there are cliffs on the side of the road. What, what about the danger uh, from the police uh, side? In other words, they know or they suspect that the guy driving the white car has a lot of marijuana in the trunk. They have no basis for pulling him over. And they say, well, guess what? We got an anonymous tip that he was driving erratically, so we pulled him over. What, Honor, what protection is there against that? Your Honor, if police are willing to lie uh, about what they saw or, to, you know, in, in, the, in the cases of sort of rogue officers, they may exist, um, but this rule isn't going to prevent — no rule is going to prevent that. Officers could just as easily lie about what they saw. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Clevin, you have three minutes remaining. In this case, we're talking about a single uncorroborated tip of reckless driving. Uh, after that uh, single incident, the car, the truck went for approximately 19 miles with no indication of any other problem and then uh, was followed for up to five miles by the police officers, again, with no indication of any erratic driving or any other uh, violation that would have been uh, a reason for pulling them over immediately. There's no reason to believe that the driver of this truck presented any kind of danger about being about to lose control, which is the argument that the state is relying on and, and the federal government. And uh, this, neither one of them came up with any anecdote, even, where that has actually occurred, much less any statistics to show that that is a serious problem of people losing control while they're being under surveillance by the police officers. This case is even farther away from the bomb situation than J.L. was. In J.L., you had a person who was armed, who could have pulled out a gun 
and uh, started firing at any moment. Here you have something where there's no indication of any ongoing risk to the public. I, I don't think — I don't know that there's a good answer to the bomb question. I, I read through the transcript from the oral argument in JL. I didn't see any — yeah, there didn't seem to be any good arguments, that, any good uh, discussions there either as to which way the Court could go. But this case — in JL, the Court said there's no reason for us to resolve that. We don't have to speculate about a situation where that would happen. In this case, I submit there's even less reason for the Court to speculate about the bomb situation uh, or even the kidnapping situation. Well, I find that unsatisfactory because if you — unless you're willing to say it doesn't matter — whether it's a bomb, an atomic bomb, a little bomb, <clears throat> then there, there must be — if you're going to draw the line someplace, then you're going to have to distinguish between those reports of crimes that are serious enough to be on one side of the line and those reports of the crime that are not serious enough to be on that side of the line. You either have to go all the way or you have to draw a line. And if you're going to draw a line, I would like to know where the line is. Or not, except I don't think I don't think you can draw the line in terms of reasonable suspicion because then you're going to have this. All right, forget about reasonable suspicion. Just can it be done? Certainly, you, you can say it can never be done, even if it's an atomic bomb, even if it's a, a, some other type of bomb. You can say that, or you can say no. There's a line someplace. If you're going to say there's a line someplace, then really I think you need to tell us where the line is. Your Honor, I, I think the line is certainly when we get into the bomb situation, but not in terms of reasonable suspicion. The severity of the crime does not affect it, but the Court could fashion a rule that would say there's an exception in this case that would apply. For a bomb, for any kind of a bomb. Well, no, I don't think. I think if, they, if there's a Has call in that says a white, a white Prius has a bomb, I, you know, that doesn't seem to be uh, the sort of case under the totality of the circumstances where this Court would find reasonable suspicion. What about drawing the line at, at intentional conduct. The guy who has a bomb is going to use it. He's intentionally going to use it. Well, that, or maybe intentionally doing uh, action that is going to harm more than one person, as opposed to maybe this person might accidentally, because he's inebriated, uh, hurt somebody. Yeah. It seems well, to me there's a clear line between somebody who's, who's bent on an intentional crime and somebody who might harm somebody because of his conduct. Yeah. You like yeah, that line? I have another one, too. So you can go. Uh, yes, sir, I think those are two uh, significant distinctions, certainly, between the, the bomb analogy and uh, the situation, even in the, in the drunken driving situation, where you don't have anybody who is uh, intentionally trying to harm anyone, and the magnitude of the risk is, is much greater. In the so if somebody has five drinks and goes and gets in the car, that's not intentionally trying to harm someone or recklessly? Well, in terms of uh, their their decision to get drunk, uh, there's intent there. In terms of by the time the officer becomes aware of it, there's no indication that that drunk driver is going down the road trying to harm somebody. There is an indication that they may be too, uh, too inebriated to be driving properly, and police officers have been pulling people over for that situation uh, since the car was invented, and uh, they have, they're really good at it. Thank you, Council. Council, the case is submitted.